Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, we are starting a new series in our weekly podcast uh, webcast series. Uh, it's called Ask HR, where we're going to take uh, the top questions that we get from clients who ask uh, our HR consultants. Uh, as you guys know, we uh, many of our clients use Assure for outsourced human resources. Uh, and so we're kind of tip of the spear, uh, taking in all the questions that come in from the field. And, and I think this is uh, uh, maybe the one of the areas that companies get in the most trouble. Uh, it's certainly one of the most misunderstood areas. And it's, a, it's how to classify employees around exempt versus non-exempt. Uh, and I have the perfect guest uh, today uh, joining me, Mary Simmons. Mary uh, is our Vice President of HR Consulting. Mary comes uh, with, with, a, with a long background. We, we won't say how many years, Mary, right? Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but she's she's uh, been an adjunct professor for New York Institute of Technology. Uh, she led the HR Consulting practice for a prestigious New York law, law firm for 12 years before joining Assure uh, and held big HR roles at, 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 at big companies uh, in the past. So so she she knows everything there is to know here. And she has assembled the questions from her team uh, and is going to really help, help us unpack this topic. So, so Mary, let, let, let's just jump right in. Um, uh, it, it, and I think this is the, this is the, the first mistake companies make, right? It's do all employees even have to be classified exempt versus non-exempt? Absolutely. Um, a whole lot of times when I'm on the call with a prospect um, thinking of utilizing HR consulting, they don't even know that terminology. And then when I explain it to them, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of my none of my employees get overtime, which is always you know, a red flag to me, Mike, because right. it's the, it's the rare organization that doesn't have anybody that is non exempt. Um, meaning that th that you know nobody's getting eligible for overtime. So you know the the courts will look at it as though every employee, the default is non-exempt, right? Meaning that you are not exempt from overtime, so you get overtime, right? Um, and don't forget when we talk about this and any employment law, you've got federal law. You've got state law and you and you have local law, local law to a lesser extent, right? So when it comes to classifications, we're really going to talk today about federal laws. So that's the Fair Labor Standards Act. And then we're going to talk about how the states jump into it and yeah. have a, a you know a little twist on it. it yeah, and I, honestly, I think this is why it's become so complex, right? Uh, we talk about this a lot where I, I'm not going to say it was always easy necessarily for small and mid-sized companies to comply uh, with, with, with HR laws, but when they were big federal laws, I mean, FLSA, that's, you know, 1938. It's, you know, I mean, people have figured it out, right, how to comply right. with, uh, right. with FLSA. Uh, and it was like, you know, a couple of decades later, it was like the 60s with, you know, uh, age discrimination, wage discrimination, Civil Rights Act. Is, is, is these big things that happen, you know, every every few years to a decade or two. Um, but what's making this extra complex now is states have their own versions of essentially FLSA, right, or some components of it. In, in this case, overtime rules uh, in classification for exempt, not exempt for overtime. Um, uh, but we're even seeing local municipalities starting to get in the game 
uh, with their own versions of these state and federal laws. So uh, it, 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 we'll have to we'll have to try to walk this line of hey, here's what the federal law is without trying to explain here's what every each and every of the fifty states do as well, right? Right, exactly. And the yeah. the big differentiator is really for FLSA is going to be salary. Right. Um, so one thing to keep in mind, everybody understands there's minimum wages. Right. And again, federal law, you know, 725 an hour is minimum wage unless the state has made the minimum wage for that state higher. Right. So New York is up to $15 an hour in most areas and a little bit less in in upstate New York. The employee always gets the best of the law. You can't decide as an employer, hmm, I'm going to give them the federal minimum wage, salary, you know, wage, minimum hourly rate, sorry, yeah. rather than what the state denotes. But the little known fact is that exempt employees, which should be paid a salary, also have a minimum salary that has to be met. That's what gets employers. I think that employers sometimes say, yeah. I want everybody to be exempt so I don't have to pay overtime, not realizing there's a minimum salary that they have to meet. I talked to an, a business owner, maybe it's two, three months ago is all. And, and, and this person, they thought they were genuinely, they have a great relationship with this one employee. All the other employees are mostly commissioned and a couple hourly as a retail environment. Um, and this person was kind of a assistant manager floater kind of a role. Sometimes there'd be overtime, sometimes be a 25 hour week. So just to make it smooth and even, even for everybody, made the person salary, right? And exempt, even though the duties were clearly, clearly not, right? But th so, th so this is an area where people can really get in trouble if they do it wrong, right? Oh, 100%. I have a, uh, a bagel store, a couple bagel stores that I support here in New York. And the employer's like, but they want to be paid salary so they know what they're going to get. And I said, you can't contract around the law, right? So when it comes to overtime, we all know that after 40 hours in a week, federally, an employee gets time and a half. Now in California, that switches to eight hours in a day, then overtime is, is uh, triggered. But, and, and I'll talk to employers and they'll say, well, Mike worked 45 hours this week, but um, instead of getting five hours overtime this week, he wants to come in five hours late on Monday. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> because you yeah. cannot contract around the law. You can't make, even if the employee wants you to change these regulations, you can't. You have to follow the letter of the law. And, and, and let's let's just kind of go there for for a second. We're early in the conversation, but clearly, you know, small businesses especially, right? You got you got people who wear many hats. You got sometimes employees are like family, and and maybe you've had a working relationship like that. And maybe you're on the call listening today, and you've had that same working relationship for a decade, and it's never blown up on you. So why would you change things now? Um, I, I don't want to scare everybody here. I don't want scare tactics necessarily to get, get people to comply. But, but why should employers take this so seriously, Mary? 
the wage and hour, so so the Fair Labor Standards Act is also called wage and hour law, and wage and hour lawsuits outtrend your discrimination lawsuits two to one. And the reason for that is it's very easy to prove. Now, if you're using a sure software, um, I can tell you that, you know, that is at least on your side as an employer because we know that our payroll system is keeping good records of when everybody's working. But when you don't have a system like Assure Payroll, what will happen is if you misclassified somebody as exempt, um, and then let's just say they leave your employee or they get angry for some reason because you're having them work so many hours, um, and they go to the Department of Labor and say, hey, I don't think I'm exempt. I think I should be getting overtime. The onus is on the employer to prove did they work more or less than 40 hours in a given work week. So that <clears throat> that is a big lift. And if you don't have good records, like a good payroll system like Assure, then it's going to be your word against the employee and the employee is going to produce a handwritten note that says for the past 10 weeks i've worked 60 hours a week and that's what the courts are going to go on now you owe back tax back payroll taxes and back overtime and there may even be some willful uh fines uh levied against you yeah, so and, and, and it's we're, important. We're, so true life story uh <sighs> An employer, an employee, long-term, like family relationship. It's kind of what you described. Hey, instead of overtime uh, for the five hours this week, I'm going to short next week by five hours. And everybody was cool with it. That was just, right? It wasn't a problem. Um, until one new employee comes in. And, you know, most businesses are more than one employee. So all it takes is a new employee sometime in this owner, this business, this entrepreneur had no idea that this uh, new employee was disgruntled at all. But this this employee knew that and they thought it was unfair because I worked the extra five hours. Why wouldn't I get paid overtime? Because this person knew the law and they filed a complaint right to the to the to the state officials. And all of a sudden it resulted in an audit and it wasn't just, OK, slap on the wrist. We're going to fix this going forward. It was fines, but it was also retroactive years, years oh. unpaid overtime to all employees. And this was yeah. really, really expensive because eventually, I think everybody has to think about this, not an if, but a when you're going to get caught because there's going to be some employees sometime that knows this isn't right, feels it isn't right. It, even if you turn out to be in the right, that's going to file a complaint and you're going to be audited. And the Department of Labor can come and do audits, you know, anytime they want. So it doesn't have to be triggered by an employee. And, and you're absolutely right, Mike. I'm talking to employers all day, every day. And what they'll say to me is, I've never had a problem. And my response to that is, you never had a problem until you do. And, I, you know, I don't wish it to happen, but th these are the kinds of compliance issues that we're helping our employers with every day to avoid any litigation or any problems. And, and you also want to avoid poor employee satisfaction, right? So it's compliance and it's productivity. You know, you the employers want to do the right thing. Um, and that's and that's what we help them with. Right. Okay. All right. So so 
exempt versus non-exempt, it means being exempt from overtime. It's the wage and hour law as a result of Fair Labor Standards Act. Yep. There are federal laws, but uh, most importantly, and maybe maybe most importantly, there are also state versions of these laws. Yep. You must comply with whatever is the highest bar. Um, before we actually start talking about what some of these exemption qualifications are, anything else big picture that our, our audience needs to understand about what exempt and non-exempt even are? There are differences in the way we pay them, right? So we deal with this on the payroll side all the time. And so for an exempt employee, most of the time, okay, you never say never in HR, um, most of the time your exempt employees should be paid a salary and your non-exempt employees should be paid an hourly rate. OK, so that non-exempt employee can be paid on a salary basis, but then when you're calculating overtime, it's cumulative, meaning that the first week that they hit overtime, you've now changed their hourly rate. So the next week they have a higher hourly rate and that overtime is off that hourly rate, not the hourly rate that you gave them. So my advice is that exempt is paid salary non-exempt is paid um, on an hourly basis. The um, exception to that exempt salary rule is your computer employees. Um, so they can be paid on an hourly basis. They just have to, that hourly rate has to meet the uh, salary minimum for the week, but you can pay them on an hourly basis. And when you say your computer employees, are you talking about the job type, like the professionals? litmus test the exempt computer workers so really simply stated and again you this is why we create job descriptions but really simply stated a help desk person right so normally the way that you're dividing the the exemption and non-exempt duties is exempt are doing professional duties non-exempt are doing uh non-exempt non-exempt, non-professional duties. So on the computer side, your help desk professional is probably going to be non-exempt, right? Your computer engineers, my son's a UX designer, he's a computer engineer, exempt employee. Yeah, all right, we're starting to get into qualifications. So let's just jump to it. Um, it, it uh, you, you take the lead here, just just unpack for us. There's There's different buckets of tests, what are the tests within those buckets? Take, take us through what the qualifications are to determine if someone is in fact exempt from receiving overtime. Okay, so first of all, I need the our audience to understand that there are certain exemptions. So when you designate an employee, let's just say Joe is in the picture here, right? If when I designate Joe, to be an exempt employee, I have to choose the exemption and it, I would note it on their job description that Joe fits into. OK, so let's just say for argument's sake that Joe is an engineer. He's a professional engineer. He's got that that degree. OK, and those are the responsibilities. They are professional responsibilities that he is doing on the job. So that is the professional exemption that Joe would be exempt under. Three things that we have to consider when we're talking about Joe's exemption. Number one, salary level. So on a 
federal level, the professional exemption has to be paid $684 a week. Okay, now that's going to be higher in many states, two of which are New York and California, where that is upwards of eleven hundred a week. Okay, so let's just assume Joe is in a state that is following the federal salary exemption. Number one, to be exempt under the professional exemption, Joe has to be paid six hundred and eighty four dollars a week. Number two, salary basis. How is Joe being paid? For an exempt employee, he should be paid salary. What does that mean? That means for any given week, no matter the quality of his, of his work or the hours he works, doing air quotes, um, he should be paid his $684 a week. The third bucket that we have to look at, and to me, it's the most important because it's the most misunderstood, is the duties test. Joe has to be doing responsibilities as an engineer at XYZ company that meet the duties test for, and we designated him the professional exemption. Okay, so it's very important that the that employers look at those three buckets and make sure that they're exempt employees, right? Everybody else is non exempt. They're non exempt. They're exempt employees meet the criteria of each of those exemptions. Now, I'm just going to give another exemption, another example. The executive exemption. So there's three white collar exemptions, administrative, professional, which we said Joe was an executive. Now let's pretend that Joe is a supervisor. He supervises Sam, who's standing next to him and three other individuals. So now I consider that maybe Joe has the executive exemption, which states, and this is all, you know, easily um, this information is easily found um, under the FLSA and we help our employers with it every day, the executive exemption, Joe needs to manage two or more people for the majority of his day, okay, in general. So as an example, Walmart and Home Depot had big class action suits because they said, okay, we have managers that are managing two or more people, executive exemption, work 60, 70 hours a week, and we're going to pay you that 684 uh, a week. OK, yeah. now that was challenged in the courts, Mike, because they did manage people, but the rest of their day they were stocking shelves and the majority of the time the duties test did not suffice for the executive exemption because the majority of their time was doing non um, executive ex exemption duties, right? Stocking shelves, helping clients, ringing on a register, etc. So in theory, they didn't meet that that third bucket, that duties test. They should have been non-exempt. And this is this is the big gotcha area, right? Because you have somebody who's somebody who's a team lead. So there's there's six hundred how many dollars a week? You said six hundred and eighty four dollars on the federal level. So uh, in upwards of how much? I thought 1100 a week in New York and California. Is that right? Right. So in New York and California, in New York, you have to make 58 
1,600. That, that's um, that's, that's an annual salary. So, so if you just, if you think about backing into a salary, you know, your $58,000 person uh, uh, is kind of, kind of your kind of your threshold. So let's say you're you're paying them enough money. Um, they have direct reports. They have hiring and firing a responsibility even for those direct reports, right? But yeah. if the majority of their day is if if they're what's called uh, commonly called today in the letter retail world, it's a, they're the key holder, right? They might yeah. have hiring responsibility for a couple of people, but if all day long they're ringing people out at the register, they're making sandwiches, <laughs> whatever it is that they're doing, they Start. are. They should be non-exempt. And I'll give you a third example. The administrative exemption trips up everybody because of that word administrative, right? So I, I was on a call with an employer who said, well, I made the salary where I knew it should be. I paid them salary and I changed their job description and their title to office manager. So now they have the administrative exemption. No, no, because it's the they're still not passing that duties test. And for an administrative exemption, one of the duties tests is that you have independent judgment on things that are of uh, significance for the organization. And that doesn't mean ordering office supplies. Um, there's other things that, that would meet that criteria. An HR manager in many organizations is going to have that administrative exemption, right? Because they have authority to hire and fire and make independent judgments on the benefits broker and, and days off and things like that. So they may have that administrative exemption. But this is this can be very difficult for employers to do themselves. And that's why one of the main projects that we do for every client is we write their job descriptions and make sure that those job descriptions can defend the exemption, be it non-exempt or exempt. I, I'm going to I'm going to come to job descriptions because I think this is just so critical. Um, I'm going to save that for a second. Um, how and, and and I want this to be in like overt sales pitch for 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 sure. But just how do business owners and managers make these decisions on fringe cases, right? Because because this feel I don't know how to phrase the question. It seems like there's a continuum of a lot so much gray here. When I think about so many jobs that are kind of on the bubble compensation wise, they're on the bubble. Uh, that it's not a fresh out of uh, uh, you know out of high school uh, kind of job. It's not entry level job. It does, it's also not an advanced degree job. There is skills involved. Maybe it's maybe I'm not a CPA, but maybe I'm a bookkeeper, right? I'm an individual contributor working doing individual tasks all day. Um, I don't get to decide what those tasks are. Sometimes I don't even get to decide how I'm going to do those tasks. How, how do employers make these decisions? It, and like I said, it's not easy. And so when we do job descriptions, what we try to do is we try to look at the incumbent, right? And you have to be careful because if let's just say you were in that bookkeeper position, just because you're in the 
in the bookkeeper position and maybe you have your master's in psychology, that's not going to push you into that professional exemption because that master's in psychology isn't needed for that position. So you have to be careful when you look at incumbents and what they're doing, but you should be interviewing the incumbents in the position and really understanding what they're doing on a daily basis. You should be interviewing their managers to understand what their responsibilities are, how much authority they have, right? And that independent judgment. And we didn't we only started talking about the three white collar exemptions. There's also a creative exemption that people on your team being in marketing might have. Um, the creative exemption, we support a lot of country clubs. So the the tennis pro can have a creative exemption. So I didn't, you know, we're just at the tip of the iceberg. There's many exemptions um, other than those three white collar exemptions that need to be considered, right? So outside salespeople are almost always considered exempt. Inside salespeople almost always considered non-exempt. I've always kind of struggled with that one. So coming out of the sales and marketing world, help me understand why that might be. So your non-exempt, your non-exempt individuals, which are your inside salespeople, they just don't fit into any of the exemptions. But there is an exemption for outside sales. And there's a threshold, just like everything else, when it comes to the duties test. And it's far greater than 50% of their time. So 51% of their time is spent outside doing, um, <clears throat> you know, sales calls with clients. Um, that's and not going to meet that outside sales. It has to be more. It has to be the majority of their day is outside sales. And Mayor, when you say there is an exemption, you're not talking about uh, the business owner, the employer, making the decision between say inside sales and outside sales, you're saying the statutes spell it out. The law yes, says there's an outside sales exemption. Yep. And they do not have to meet the salary minimums. And the reason for that is because there's an assumption that they're also getting commission or a bonus of some type when you're outside sales. So you can have outside salespeople that are exempt and you're you have to make sure that they're paid 684 a week, but you don't have to give that as a base salary. You can have them on 100% commission. And so the irony is this is probably a case, and I'm just thinking out loud here because it's kind of my world uh, with, with salespeople, yeah. um, where the, the law is probably out of date. These laws were passed before we had uh, Zoom calls, right? Where you have highly- capable salespeople that aren't face-to-face -face, uh, or outside. They may be doing it all from inside. How, how, how do employers make those classifications then? So th this is really another reason why job descriptions are one of the first projects that we do with our clients, because during yeah. the pandemic, we had to change most job descriptions, right? Because any position that used to be in the office and is now 100% remote or hybrid, that needs to be designated within that job description, right? Because, it, and, and this will be another topic that you and I will talk about, uh, but the job descriptions are also used to, you know, 
say whether or not somebody we can make an accommodation and they can work full time from home. Right. That needs to be shown in the job description. Um, so all of the job descriptions should be looked at if we changed the way that our employees are working. For sure. Yeah. OK. Um, what else should our listeners know about just the rules of of what the qualifications are, the, the buckets of these tests before we move on to job descriptions? I mean, I think if, if they focus on those three areas, right, and you have to meet all three areas, you can't meet two out of three, you have to meet all three areas, salary level, salary basis, duties test, and then you say, this is the exemption that Joe has, then you're going to be, and you can prove it with a job description, you should be fine. But again, you need eyes on it from an HR professional or an employment attorney. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, and with all the all the variations on this that are at state level, are you aware of any local like like um, we're talking a couple of weeks ago in our webinar, we we talked about uh, W two versus ten ninety nine, and starting to see like cities having their own rules. Like I want to say it was uh, you got a you got federal law, you got uh, with IRS, you've got state laws. Uh, but in like uh, North Carolina, uh, was it Charlotte? Uh, the city of Charlotte had its own laws. Are do you, are you seeing municipalities having their own versions of wage and hour, or is this primarily either federal or state? No, there is, there is um, for sure, but it is mostly federal and state um, because, and the difference, like I said before, is mostly that they're higher salary minimums, just like there's higher minimum wage. Almost any state that has a higher minimum wage than the federal minimum wage has a higher salary. D remember, the, the government hasn't changed minimum wage in years. They in 2020, they changed, they increased the professional and executive exemption to that 684, but they didn't touch the other ones. And for years and years and years, they had been increasing minimum wage and minimum salary almost every year, which is really what they should have been doing, right? They should have been doing it incrementally. Um, and that's what, when New York went to $15 an hour over a four-year span, that's still <clears throat> a little bit of a heartache for, for a small company, right? Well, um, the shift has definitely gone from the federal to the states, no question. But, it, but yes. the, where I, and you started answering, I think the, 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 where I was really going with my question is, of the three buckets to the test, the one that is different at the state level is usually that salary, salary. right? It, it's yes. not uh, exemptions themselves. Nope. It's not the duties. It's just that salary level. Correct. Got it. Okay. All right. Anything else on this topic or can we move to uh, job descriptions? We can move on to job descriptions because the, the job descriptions are the most important piece here. So things to keep in mind. Number one, your job description should always have a date on them so that we know when you looked at them, right? And you know when you looked at them. And by the way, you should be looking at them every year. 
point in case you have a pandemic, the person may be hybrid now, or they may be 100% remote. That changes things when it comes to the job description, okay? And I just want to stop here and explain because I've had this issue twice this week with different employers who I said, oh, do you have a job description? And they send me their ad, their ad for employment that they're posting on Indeed. Completely different documents. Occasionally, yeah. there's going to be some similarities. There should be some similarities, but your ad is outward facing. Your job description is inward facing. Your job description is going to show the duties that meet the duties test. And in addition, Mike, the job title does help. But just calling somebody a manager, if that manager, like the example you gave, if that manager's making sandwiches all day, he's still probably going to be uh, non-exempt. So the job description is going to have the exemption. It's going to say whether it's non-exempt or exempt. It's going to have a date, a job title. It's going to have essential and non-essential functions of the job. So this is the things they always have to do. Non-essential would be responsibilities that they do on an interim basis or they do, um, you know, occasionally. And then that is going to what really what drives that exemption is the duties that you're putting in your job description. So Mary, in an attempt to not be self-serving, so someone <laughs> someone uh, I, I want I want everybody listens to this to get value whether we whether they ever talk to anybody to sure ever again right right so if if you don't hire if you don't hire a professional sure I'm certified professional or uh, an attorney to do these things for you what what is the what are some really practical steps that employers can take because as I'm thinking this through there's no way the average entrepreneur knows everything there is to know about their business and their industry, but they don't know HR, right? So there still has to be some practical steps they could take to writing a job description that will help to be defensive should something bad ever happen in case of an audit, right? Right. So you can, the um, U.S. Department of Labor does have a, um, a sheet, an informational sheet for every exemption. So what it does on those sheets is it gives you the duties, and I gave you some examples for executive and, and administrative. Uh, it gives you the duties that would fit into and some job title examples that will fit into each of those exemptions. So minimally, if you don't have my team to support you, I would look at those um, description sheets for each different exemption to see which that particular employee that you're writing the job description for, look at their duties you have on that job description, look at the informational sheet from the Department of U.S. Department of Labor and compare the two. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, what else, whether they do it themselves or hire a professional, what else should be in these job descriptions? So you have to be explicit in the job descriptions, right? So you have to walk that fine line, right? You don't want a job description to be 10 pages long, right? But we also have to be explicit. So when we talk about managing employees, 
what are you doing when you manage those employees? Like you said, you really do want to define, are you hiring and firing, managing, coaching? Are you training, right? How many individuals, right? Is it two to five? Because if it's only one employee, you're not going to meet that executive threshold. So you do have to use descriptive words. And I would use words right out of the Department of Labor's descriptions. For an administrative um, exemption, I would make sure that you explicitly say utilizes independent judgment or has the uh, authority to make approval for vendor bills or whatever it is so that that is you know makes it very easy if you were audited for them to understand that the, the individual does have independent judgment or is managing more than two people mary it might sound like a weird question i remember going through something like this years ago um and uh i was being advised to put together you know uh what, what, what felt to me very legalistic job descriptions, right? And it was, it was for all the reasons we're talking about here. Um, but I was concerned uh, how, about the cultural impact because I'm like, okay, I got a, somebody's just started with my company. I'm gonna hand them a job description. I, I want them to feel warm and fuzzy about the place they're joining, that this place is awesome, right? right. And, and all of a sudden, and, and hopefully they've experienced that through the entire, uh, screening and interviewing process that has led up to day one on the job, and all of a sudden, here's this super legalistic sounding document. Co coach us through that. How do you how do you protect yourself? How do you still manage to culture? Is it is it a separate document on top of it? Uh, Take us through that. I wouldn't have two different job descriptions, but it's a really good question, Mike. I think the way that I would approach it is. You know, there's no reason that it can't be a document that is employee friendly, but I would walk through the job description with an employee versus just handing it to them. I don't give the employees that I hire on my team any document without walking them through it, not even the organizational chart. I walk them through it and explain to them, you know, the interplay be between the different departments and the different individuals and the different positions. I do the same with a job description. Here's your job description. Let's talk about each of your responsibilities. Understanding this is not inclusive. It can't be everything that you do, but let's let's do this high view of it and, and talk about each of these bullet points so that they un I know they understand it and it does soften it right because you're going to explain it right right that's the way I'd approach it okay that's that's good advice um anything else on job descriptions wage and hour law in advice you have for our listeners today on exempt versus non-exempt Job descriptions are going to be the way to defend them. So make sure that you do these job descriptions. I know that this is even when we're doing it with our clients, it's still a lot of work, but it has to be done. And there's a lot of reasons you want job descriptions. And every employee has to be exempt or non-exempt. There is no if, ands, or buts. Um, and I want everybody to remember those three areas, right? So it's salary level, salary basis, and the duties test. All three have to be met for the exemptions. Okay. 
Um, I I do hope this cleared this the the topic up for people. Uh, the, the intent here is not to be self-serving, uh, but you know clearly, uh, we this is what we do to, to help clients, right? Because th these are complex issues. So if you run a business that you have uh, people clearly financially below the threshold, you don't even need test number two and three. These are all non-exempt employees, right? If you run a, a, a law firm and everybody's highly compensated, uh, it's a non-issue, everybody is exempt. But that's not the reality for most businesses. Most businesses <clears throat> have some combination of employees that are exempt and some that are non-exempt in where you can really get yourself in trouble is, is, is all these employees uh, that, that are on the bubble. And it's not a cultural thing, how you want to interplay and interact with your employees. It's the law. And this, so this is a matter of following the law and the law can be complex. So uh, uh, three levels of support that we can help you. Uh, either we can provide on an outsourced basis, the HR support for your managers. This is Mary's team. Uh, uh, we can do that in, I would say, a more reactive way. You have questions, unlimited phone, unlimited email to ask those questions. Uh, or we can do it uh, in a proactive way where we are the ones proactively working with your team, making sure we have hand, uh, employee handbook, make sure we have job descriptions, make sure we have a talent management strategy to recruit, onboard, train, and retain that talent, all while staying compliant. Uh, or if you want uh, an entire outsourced solution, it's, this, the, the data is really interesting uh, that so many employees uh, actually prefer using an outsourced uh, HR service because they know that their HR person is maybe good friends with their boss or yeah. a relationship there. And even if they don't know they're good friends, there's there's uncertainty. How will this information be used or not used against them? Um, and so uh, sometimes the unbiased opinion of a third party is a really good thing and your employees love it. So whether you choose to do business with us or not, I hope today was a, a lot of value. Uh, and and uh, until next week, we wish you the very best of luck. Uh, uh, Mary, as always, I get smarter every time I talk to you. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Have a great week, everyone.